The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1812, the political philosopher William Godwin said of his daughter Mary, quote, I am anxious that she be brought up like a philosopher, even like a cynic. End quote. The young teenage girl had a pedigree. Her mother, the famous women's rights activist Mary Wollstonecraft, had died within a fortnight of her birth. And her father, the survivor, was himself an extremely well-known novelist and journalist and political thinker. He was not, however, a financial success. Debts plagued him. He remarried to help raise the children. The new stepmother was not kind to Mary. Mary was raised to revere her departed mother and to honor her memory by becoming as educated as Mary Wollstonecraft had hoped all girls would be. Godwin, for his part, though not strictly following all of Wollstonecraft's ideas for how a girl should be educated, nevertheless honored her spirit by exposing young Mary to ideas and thinkers, providing tutors, tutoring her himself, and giving her access to books and other forms of education. The process worked. At age 15, Godwin described his daughter Mary in a letter as, quote, singularly bold, somewhat imperious, and active of mind. Her desire of knowledge is great, and her perseverance in everything she undertakes almost invincible, end quote. At age 16, Mary Godwin attracted the attention of Percy Bysshe Shelley. He was married at the time, but he fell in love with her as a woman capable of independent thought. Surprisingly, she argued with him. Knowing of her love for stories and storytelling, he encouraged her to write. She produced a pioneering science fiction-slash-gothic-horror novel-slash-philosophical-morality tale-slash-Halloween classic. In a period famous for its poetry and poets, her novel stands apart. While we also have Jane Austen doing Jane Austen-y things at the, around the same time, it is Shelley's work that perhaps best captures in prose the mood and concerns of the era, particularly that of the intelligentsia. And when she was 25, her father William Godwin wrote the following to her, quote, Frankenstein is the most wonderful work to have been written at 20 years of age that I have ever heard of. You are now five and twenty, and, most fortunately, you have pursued a course of reading and cultivated your mind in a manner the most admirably adapted to make you a great and successful author. If you cannot be independent, who should be? End quote. And yet, in spite of Godwin's love and respect for his daughter, the two of them were temporarily estranged, in part because of her relationship with Percy Bysshe Shelley, the lover who eventually became her husband. Mary Godwin Shelley's life is one filled with love, absence, disappointment, rough living, ideas and their consequences, tragedies and depression, fame and notoriety, depths of despair, and posthumous triumph. And of course, the book that is about as famous in Western culture as any book short of Shakespeare and the Bible, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Mary Shelley would be a fascinating figure in literary history even without that book. With it, she becomes indispensable both to literary history 
and the History of Popular Culture. Mary Shelley, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you decided you chose to take the time and listen to this episode today. Mary Shelley, what a packed life she had and what a long afterlife she has had as well. Brief and eventful, that seems to be the order of the day for these romantics, although Mary was lucky enough to live longer than many of her peers. Jane Austen, 41 she died. What a tragedy. She died just six months before Frankenstein was published, so she never got the chance to read it. Her books Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, published posthumously in 1818, share a publication year with Shelley's masterpiece, Frankenstein. Some other young deaths. Percy Shelley, of course, just 29, and he was practically an old man compared with poor Keats. Died at age 25, younger and the notorious rock star death age of 27. Those rock stars had unlimited fame and celebrity and mountains of drugs to contend with. Keats had tuberculosis, which cut him down even sooner. Here's what we have for you today. Mary Shelley's life, which is fascinating. She was doing more at 16, 17, and 18 than most of us managed to do ever. <laughs> it's like she was launched from a cannon with Percy Shelley right there alongside her. That's kind of a weird metaphor now that I think about it. Probably a, probably a bad one. Two cannonballs racing through the sky? Hmm, not so sure. That's what I should have reached for there. Metaphor is the sign of genius, said Aristotle. And bad metaphors are the sign that Jack Wilson's mouth is moving, said Five million downloaders of the History of Literature podcast. Almost six million now. A lot of, a lot of ears. That's twelve million ears to offend. <laughs> but on we go. After the, <laughs> after the life of Mary Shelley, we're going to look at Mary Shelley's works, starting with Frankenstein and including eight or nine other works with which you might not be as familiar. We'll hear about the circumstances of writing Frankenstein, which is an oft-told tale including here on the History of Literature, but this one will be different as we're going to hear the account as told by Mary Shelley herself. But first, we begin with an email from a listener. Subject, a letter from an Iranian in Italy. Let me pause there. I can't get to every email, as you know, but if there's a subject that's going to get me to open an email and take some time with it, a letter from an Iranian in Italy would be pretty high on the list. I am not going to to skip over that one lightly. Just like the one I got that said, from your Brazilian friend. That was a good one. I hadn't known that I had a Brazilian friend. It turns out that I have several over the years, thanks to the podcast. Okay, back to the email. And I, a letter from an Iranian in Italy. Dear Jack, let me start my letter with a wish. How I wished you would excuse and correct my bad English as you read this. English is my third language, after Kurdish and Farsi, so I'm not the best at it. 
I got to know the amazing HOL podcast last year just by simply typing literature in my podcast app and you came up. Then I searched one of my favorite author's names, Murakami, and boy, that episode was amazing. I started listening to more and more episodes, especially on the way back home from work, which was a bookshop. And then he names the bookshop in Tehran, which I won't provide, preserve some anonymity. He says, you made me fall back in love with my job and I appreciate it more. As a consequence, I decided to post about interesting interactions with customers about books and literature on my Instagram page and made an individual account just for that. And this is why I am in Italy with my girlfriend now! Exclamation mark. Oh boy, that's the story we want to hear. Okay, let me explain, says the emailer. One of the days last summer, a beautiful girl started following my page and found my content fun. She messaged me and talked about how she's been in a bookstore as well, and we started chatting, and things went great, and we started a relationship. The only thing was that she was about to move to Italy. I was not even thinking about leaving my country at that point, but what we had was so good that I started trying. And after she left Iran and a nine-month long-distance relationship, here I am beside her in a bus at 2 a.m. going from Turin to Naples as she's taking a nap and I am typing. Obviously, listening to you before deciding to write a letter. Life is full of surprises, and I would like to think that you and your podcast was one of the things that influenced this amazing path in my life. I've been here less than two weeks and I've had troubles finding a place to stay, but God, Italy is beautiful. I pass by nice bookstores, and they remind me of my previous job, and I go inside sometimes and look at the books just to feel them, even though I can't understand them since they're mostly in Italian. Thank you for every joy you've injected into my life, Jack. You're not aware of every effect you've made on your listeners, but we have to remind you of that. Best regards. Hamed. Oh, Hamed, thank you for this wonderful email and your kind words about the show. It is a butterfly flapping its wings, right? And the consequences are somewhere on the other side of the globe. It's a beautiful idea. Mm. I wouldn't say that listeners have to remind me of that, but it is awfully nice when they do. I am rooting for you, Hamed. Rooting for you and that beautiful girl and for you following that beautiful girl to Italy, traveling from Turin to Naples. Be careful in Naples, by the way, as we'll hear in a moment. It was not kind to Mary Shelley, but Italy was kind and restorative. The Shelleys were floored by its beauty, as was I when I first traveled there at age 20 and and am continually floored all the times I've been there since. It's a good place for romance and for taking things slow and for appreciating things like poetry and people and, I guess, podcasts, too. Why not? If it if it didn't start with a P, I wouldn't have added podcasts. But hey, I don't make the words. <laughs> I just bungle them. <laughs> good luck to you, Hamid. Let us know how you and that beautiful and bookish girl are doing. And as for the podcast, injecting joy into your life, well, now we're even, because that's exactly what you've done to mine. Let's take our first break. Oh, wait, I've got a teaser before the first break. A famous couplet by Lee Hunt 
friend of the Shelleys, who wrote in the Blue Stocking Revels this encapsulation of how many people regarded Mary Shelley, and still do, actually. This is Lee Hunt. He says, quote, And Shelley, forefamed for her parents, her lord, and the poor, lone, impossible monster abhorred. End quote. Do I need to unpack that? Forefamed, i.e., Mary Shelley, has four claims to fame, according to Lee Hunt in this couplet. He means her parents, by which he means her father, William Godwin, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, that's two claims to fame, and then her lord, meaning Shelley, her aristocratic husband, that's three. And what's the fourth thing? The poor, lone, impossible monster abhorred. In other words, not Mary, not Mary as a writer or Mary as a person, her monster. She had two famous parents. She married a famous guy. She created a famous thing. Well, what about her life, Lee Hunt? Is there anything notable there? Could, could we say she's five famed? We will find out after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Mary Shelley was born in 1797, the child, as Percy Shelley later wrote, of love and light. He was perhaps referring to her parents, of whom we've spoken both earlier in this episode and in our archive. Unfortunately, Mary did not really know her mother, who died within days of her birth. Instead, from the age of four, she had a stepmom, a neighbor her father had married out of something like desperation, as he was broke and not able to care for Mary. Plus, Mary had an older half-sister, Fanny Imlay, who was Mary Wollstonecraft's child that she had had with the American gadabout Gilbert Imlay. The new stepmother came with two children of her own, Claire and Charles Claremont. Reports are that the mother, the stepmother, favored those two over the Wollstonecraft slash Godwin girls. We don't know. William Godwin was devo devoted to his new wife, though. We know that. And at her encouragement, he started up a publishing house 
that was named after the two of them, with the idea of publishing children's books and other knickknacks like stationery and maps. The endeavor was a failure and sank Godwin deeper into debt. While he was in charge of Mary, even though apparently his wife had disfavored Mary and quarreled with her, Godwin at least lived up to the promise of his former wife, Mary Wollstonecraft, and made sure that Mary was educated. He brought over distinguished people like Coleridge to meet the family, inspiring young Mary, and he took uh, the kids on educational outings, and he opened the doors to his library, and perhaps most importantly, he tutored Mary personally. She also had a governess and a daily tutor. In addition to books like Sir Walter Scott's novels, she was reading her father's books about Roman and Greek history and her father's novels. Her father was, was quite an important novelist, actually. We could do a whole episode just on him. And she read her father's memoir of Mary Wollstonecraft, which he had meant to be a tribute to his dear departed wife. But because Wollstonecraft had lived freely, including bearing a child out of wedlock, the book, in spite of Godwin's best intentions, wound up scandalizing the family and was viewed by others at the time as a mistake. This might come back later in our story when Mary was editing her own deceased husband's poetry. But for now, when Mary was a girl, she had the memoir of her mother to guide her. This was an independent woman, an independent thinker who believed strongly in the power of a girl's mind and in the role that girls and women should play and should be permitted to play in society. Mary grew up believing that it was not just possible, but almost something like a duty to carry out her mother's vision of what it was possible for a woman to be. She was sent away to Scotland to study with a radical family, and when she returned, she was full of strong views of her own. By this time, she was 16 now, the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, a few years older than Mary and married, had begun visiting William Godwin because of his political views. He had promised to help Godwin get out of debt, but Percy Shelley had his own financial straits to deal with. He didn't really have access to the money that his aristocratic background suggested, as it was tied up by his grandfather and his father, and Percy's political ideas for the redistribution of wealth did not exactly open up their purse strings. In fact, his family denied him access to the money because of his views, not just as a kind of punishment for for betraying his class, but because they feared he was going to use the money for what they viewed as a foolish, uh, for foolish purposes, such as bailing out Godwin, the radical reformer. Eventually, Percy had to tell Godwin that he couldn't live up to his promise, and this announcement coincided with the news that he and Mary had been meeting at the cemetery where Mary Wollstonecraft was buried, and in fact, they were in love. Shelley was a fan of both Godwin and Wollstonecraft, and he enjoyed visiting this grave too. Mary had been, Mary Shelley, or Mary Godwin at the time, had been visiting it throughout her childhood. And on one of these visits, he and Mary Shelley had proclaimed their love for one another. Shelley said, I have an ardent passion I cannot hide. And in a sublime and rapturous moment, quote unquote, she confessed that she felt the same 
for him. And either that day or the next, she lost her virginity. And the polite way to say this is that it happened in the churchyard. But let's not forget, the churchyard was also a cemetery, which is mm, something, there's something very romantic about this. If you take romantic with a capital R and include all the gothic elements as part of it. One imagines strong winds and lightning storms being part of the scene. What happened next was one of those unsurprising surprises. Mary assumed that her father, William Godwin, who was famous for his views that marriage was oppressive and had long advocated for free love, she Mary assumed that he would therefore approve. Her father who saw his 16-year-old daughter in love with a 21-year-old married man, did not approve. And it didn't help that the young man in question had at first said that he'd pay off some debts of Godwin's and now said that he couldn't. So Godwin and his new wife, Mary's stepmother, tried to scuttle the relationship. Two days after they had expressed their love for each other in the churchyard, Percy and Mary eloped and headed for France. Claire Claremont, Mary's stepsister, went with them. Mary's stepmother chased the group as far as Calais, where they finally broke free, said they were not coming home, and instead headed to Paris. France at the time was ravaged by war. The Shelleys and their companion traveled however they could, sometimes by carriage, at other times by donkey, and sometimes just by walking. In that fashion, they made their way to Switzerland. They were reading Mary Wollstonecraft books and writing books of their own. It's a curious kind of honeymoon, not what you might expect from an aristocrat like Shelley, but it is what you'd expect for Shelley at this point in his life. Remember, he was ostracized by his family, expelled from the university, and let's not forget he was also married to another woman. To top things off, both Harriet, his first wife, and Mary became pregnant. And in, in addition, Shelley started having an affair with the stepsister, Claire Claremont. Eventually, they returned to England where they faced the opprobrium of pretty much everyone who knew them, except maybe for Shelley's old friend and running mate in college, Thomas Jefferson Hogg who at one, had at one point, if you listened to our Shelley episode, you heard that at one point he had hit on Shelley's first wife, Harriet, and who now, now that the Shelleys were back in England, fell for Shelley's new paramour, Mary Godwin, and Shelley encouraged their relationship. Mary was interested at first, and believing in free love seems to have uh, compelled her to believe, and sources are mixed on this, there's a lot of speculation about what actually happened, but she may have had an affair with Hogg. She viewed him as a friend, at least, we know from her letters, although Percy Shelley was always her first love. He of the, quote, wild, intellectual, unearthly looks, end quote. So whatever happened between Mary Shelley and Thomas Jefferson Hogg, we know she eventually cooled on him. I mentioned the pregnancies that... Of Percy Shelley, he had two at once, one with Harriet and one with Mary Godwin. Unfortunately, uh, Mary's baby was born premature and died. It was the first time Mary had lost a child, but sadly, it would not be the last. She and Percy had four children, three of whom died young. Only Percy Florence Shelley survived and lived to the 
happy and ripe old age of 80. As happy as that is, thank goodness Mary at least had him. But soon enough, she's going to lose her beloved husband on top of her sainted mother, of course, whom she lost long ago. But as happy as she was for having Percy Florence, the loss of her other children haunted her. She was depressed often throughout her life, and she was surrounded by depressed people. Her half-sister Fanny committed suicide, and Percy's first wife drowned in the Serpentine, a London lake. Shelley tested her patience by having multiple affairs, although Mary Shelley had some flirtations of her own. We've gotten slightly ahead of our story. Let's return to the spring of 1816, when Percy has written some very good poems, but not quite his masterpieces, and the two of them are still in the giddy throes of an early relationship. Mary is calling herself Mrs. Shelley, although they're not officially married yet, and her stepsister, Claire Claremont, has become enraptured with the bad boy of the day, Lord Byron. The Shelleys accompany Claire to Geneva, Switzerland, where Claire is chasing Byron, and they meet up with him, and the party is staying together at Lake Geneva, where they begin writing ghost stories. Let's take a quick break and then turn the narrative over to Mary to hear what happens next. What I'm about to read comes from the 1831 version of Frankenstein, when Mary, looking back from a vantage point 14 or so years after the publication of her famous work, has written an introduction for a new edition. Introduction. The publishers of the standard novels, in selecting Frankenstein for one of their series, expressed the wish that I should furnish them with some account of the origin of the story— I am the more willing to comply, because I shall thus give a general answer to the question, so very frequently asked me, how I, when a young girl, came to think of and to dilate upon so very hideous an idea. It is true that I am very averse to bringing myself forward in print, but as my account will only appear as an appendage to a former production— and as it will be confined to such topics as have connection with my authorship alone, I can scarcely accuse myself of a personal intrusion. It is not singular that, as the daughter of two persons of distinguished literary celebrity, I should very early in life have thought of writing. As a child, I scribbled, and my favorite pastime during the hours given me for recreation was to write stories. Still, I had a dearer pleasure than this, which was the formation of castles in the air, the indulging in waking dreams, the following up trains of thought, which had for their subject the formation of a succession of imaginary incidents. My dreams were at once more fantastic and agreeable than my writings. In the latter, I was a close imitator, rather doing as others had done, than putting down the suggestions of my own mind. What I wrote was intended at least for one other eye, my childhood's companion and friend, but my dreams were all my own. I accounted for them to nobody. They were my refuge when annoyed, my dearest pleasure when free. 
I lived principally in the country as a girl and passed a considerable time in Scotland. I made occasional visits to the more picturesque parts, but my habitual residence was on the blank and dreary northern shores of the Tay, near Dundee. Blank and dreary on retrospection, I call them, they were not so to me then. They were the eyrie of freedom, and the pleasant region where, unheeded, I could commune with the creatures of my fancy. I wrote then, but in a most commonplace style. It was beneath the trees of the grounds belonging to our house, or on the bleak sides of the woodless mountains near, that my true compositions, the airy flights of my imagination, were born and fostered. I did not make myself the heroine of my tales. Life appeared to me too commonplace an affair as regarded myself. I could not figure to myself that romantic woes or wonderful events would ever be my lot. But I was not confined to my own identity, and I could people the hours with creations far more interesting to me at that age than my own sensations. After this, my life became busier, and reality stood in place of fiction. My husband, however, was from the first very anxious that I should prove myself worthy of my parentage and enroll myself on the page of fame. He was forever inciting me to obtain literary reputation, which even on my own part I cared for then, though since I have become infinitely indifferent to it. At this time he desired that I should write not so much with the idea that I could produce anything worthy of notice, but that he might himself judge how far I possessed the promise of better things hereafter. Still, I did nothing. Traveling and the cares of a family occupied my time, and study in the way of reading or improving my ideas and communication with his far more cultivated mind was all of literary employment that engaged my attention. In the summer of 1816, we visited Switzerland and became the neighbors of Lord Byron. At first, we spent our pleasant hours on the lake or wandering on its shores, and Lord, By Lord Byron, who was writing the third canto of Child Harold, was the only one among us who put his thoughts upon paper. These, as he brought them successively to us, clothed in all the light and harmony of poetry, seemed to stamp as divine the glories of heaven and earth, whose influences we partook with him. But it proved a wet, ungenial summer, and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Some volumes of ghost stories, translated from the German into French, fell into our hands. There was the history of the inconstant lover who, when he thought to clasp the bride to whom he had pledged his vows, found himself in the arms of the pale ghost of her whom he had deserted. There was the tale of the sinful founder of his race, whose miserable doom it was to bestow the kiss of death on all the younger sons of his faded house, just when they reached the age of promise. His gigantic, shadowy form clothed like the ghost in Hamlet, in complete armor, but with the beaver up, was seen at midnight by the moon's fitful beams to advance slowly along the gloomy avenue. The shape was lost beneath the shadow of the castle walls, but soon a gate swung back, 
A step was heard, the door of the chamber opened, and he advanced to the couch of the blooming youths, cradled in healthy sleep. Eternal sorrow sat upon his face as he bent down and kissed the forehead of the boys, who from that hour withered like flowers snapped upon the stalk. I have not seen these stories since then, but their incidents are as fresh in my mind as if I had read them yesterday. We will each write a ghost story, said Lord Byron, and his proposition was acceded to. There were four of us. The noble author began a tale, a fragment of which he printed at the end of his poem of Mazeppa. Shelley, more apt to embody ideas and sentiments in the radiance of brilliant imagery and in the music of the most melodious verse that adorns our language than to invent the machinery of a story, commenced one founded upon the experiences of his early life. Poor Polidori had some terrible idea about a skull-headed lady who was so punished for peeping through a keyhole what to see, I forget, something very shocking and wrong, of course, but when she was reduced to a worse condition than the renowned Tom of Coventry, he did not know what to do with her, and was obliged to dispatch her to the tomb of the Capulets, the only place for which she was fitted. The illustrious poets also, annoyed by the platitude of prose, speedily relinquished their uncongenial task." I busied myself to think of a story, a story to rival those which had excited us to this task, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror, one to make the reader dread to look round, to curdle the blood and quicken the beatings of the heart. If I did not accomplish these things, my ghost story would be unworthy of its name. I thought and pondered vainly. I felt that blank incapability of invention, which is the greatest misery of authorship, when dull nothing replies to our anxious invocations. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. Everything must have a beginning, to speak in Sanchian phrase, and that beginning must be linked to something that went before. The Hindus gave, give the world an elephant to support it, but they make the elephant stand upon a tortoise. Invention, it must be humbly admitted, does not consist in creating out of void, but out of chaos. The materials must, in the first place, be afforded. It can give form to dark, shapeless substances, but cannot bring into being the substance itself. In all matters of discovery and invention, even of those that appertain to the imagination, we are continually reminded of the story of Columbus and his egg. Invention consists in the capacity of seizing on the capabilities of a subject, and in the power of molding and fashioning ideas suggested to it. Many and long were the conversations between Lord Byron and Shelley, to which I was a devout but nearly silent listener. During one of these, various philosophical doctrines were discussed, and among others, the nature of the principle of life, and whether there was any probability of its ever being discovered and communicated. They talked of the experiments of Dr. Darwin, I speak not of what 
the doctor really did or said that he did, but as more to my purpose of what was then spoken of as having been done by him, who preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case till by some extraordinary means it began to move with voluntary motion. Not thus, after all, would life be given. Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism had given token of such things. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought together, and endued with vital warmth. Night waned upon this talk, and even the witching hour had gone by before we retired to rest. When I placed my head on my pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination unbidden, possessed and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw, with shut eyes but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life, and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror-stricken. He would hope that, left to itself, the slight spark of life which he had communicated would fade, that this thing, which had received such imperfect animation, would subside into dead matter. And he might sleep in the belief that the silence of the grave would quench forever the transient existence of the hideous corpse which he had looked upon as the cradle of life. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening his curtains and looking on him with yellow, watery, but speculative eyes. I opened mine in terror. The idea so possessed my mind that a thrill of fear ran through me, and I wished to exchange the ghastly image of my fancy for the realities around. I see them still, the very room, the dark parquet, the closed shutters with the moonlight struggling through, and the sense I had that the glassy lake and white high alps were beyond. I could not so easily get rid of my hideous phantom. Still, it haunted me. I must try to think of something else. I recurred to my ghost story, my tiresome, unlucky ghost story. Oh, if I could only contrive one which would frighten my reader, as I myself had been frightened that night. Swift as light, and as cheering was the idea that broke in upon me. I have found it. What terrified me will terrify others, and I need only describe the specter which had haunted my midnight pillow. On the morrow, I announced that I had thought of a story. I began that day with the words, It was on a dreary night of November, making only a transcript of the grim terrors of my waking dream. At first I thought but of a few pages, of a short tale, 
but Shelley urged me to develop the idea at greater length. I certainly did not owe the suggestion of one incident, nor scarcely of one train of feeling, to my husband, and yet, but for his incitement, it would never have taken the form in which it was presented to the world. From this declaration I must accept the preface. As far as I can recollect, it was entirely written by him. And now, once again, I bid my hideous progeny go forth and prosper. I have an affection for it, for it was the offspring of happy days when death and grief were but words which found no true echo in my heart. Its several pages speak of many a walk, many a drive, and many a conversation when I was not alone, and my companion was one who, in this world, I shall never see more. But this is for myself, my readers, have nothing to do with these associations. That's Mary Shelley describing her affection for the offspring of happy days, the novel she wrote before her children and husband and others in her life had died. Frankenstein is a remarkable achievement. The story so familiar, I don't think I need to give too much detail, unless it's to separate it out from some of the later adaptations. In Shelley's novel, the scientist Victor Frankenstein creates life in his laboratory. Oddly enough, the story begins on a voyage to the North Pole. The crew spots a dog sled driven by a gigantic figure. Later, they find a nearly dead man, frozen and emaciated, who tells them the story. He is the scientist named Victor Frankenstein, an expert in chemistry and galvanism, who learned the secret of reanimating life. He, in fact, brought to life a giant creature, immediately found him hideous, and fled the lab. When he returned, the creature was gone. We later hear the account of the first days of the creature's life from the creature's point of view. He escaped the lab and lived alone in the wilderness. People were afraid of him due to his appearance until he learned how to speak and be helpful. Other events ensued. Let me stop there and say that I think the key to Mary Shelley's enduring power is in her insight slash invention, not of reanimating life, but of what happens next. It's right there in the title, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Prometheus, of course, is a mythical Greek figure who believed in technology and progress and the acquisition of knowledge. He wanted to help humanity through his works, much as Victor Frankenstein started from decent motives. According to myth, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to humans. And he was punished by Zeus for doing so. We see there the twist that Mary made. Reanimating the inanimate is not just a technological advancement, it's a theft from God. And thefts have consequences. Prometheus winds up chained to a rock while an eagle eats his liver, which grows back only to have the eagle eat it again, over and over. Victor Frankenstein is horrified by his creation and has to live with the guilt of having brought it to life. The guilt is compounded when the creature, infuriated by being mistreated by everyone, starts to go on an angry rampage. Can you blame him? You should have treated me like Adam, he says to Victor. Instead, you treated me like the fallen angel, Satan. 
That's the other fantastic insight that Mary had. Those two things tell you the whole story. First, that the, the scientist finds his creation to be hideous. And second, that the creature says, hang on, what did I do to deserve this? Fine, if I'm hideous, I even agree. When the creature sees his own reflection, he, he, he wants to puke. <laughs> but doesn't he? But aren't I literally your creation, Doctor Frankenstein? You made me hideous. Did God feel this way about Adam's physical appearance? And had He done so, whose fault would that be, Adam's or God's? You treated me like a fallen angel before I did anything wrong. All I did was open my eyes. And you screamed and fled. So thanks for bringing me to life, I guess. It's not something I asked for. But no thanks for treating me like a monster. What do you want me to do now? You should never have gotten into the life creation business. There was more sadness in store for Mary Shelley, as she alludes to in that introduction. After the death of Percy's first wife, a court ruled him morally unfit to raise his children. To try to improve his position, he and Mary officially married. She finished up Frankenstein and published it, with Percy writing the preface. Funnily enough, they dedicated the book to Godwin, and people assumed that Percy had therefore written it, knowing that Percy had admired Godwin, and somehow missing the fact that Mary was in fact Godwin's daughter. It was just as likely that she would have dedicated it to Godwin as Percy. Probably there was also some... I say funnily enough, there was probably also some chauvinism in that as well. The assumption that Percy alone could have, only Percy could have written Frankenstein. Mary sort of alludes to that. She says in the introduction, well, he wrote the preface and he inspired me, but, and he encouraged me to make it longer, but all the incidents and all the trains of thought were mine and my alone, mine alone. At any rate, there have been biographers over time who've said that Percy made some edits. We have some evidence of that, of him reviewing the manuscript and writing some lines, rewriting some lines, I should say. And some say that the edits were extensive, but the most recent biographers I've read have viewed the edits more, more along the lines of what an editor at a publishing house might do today, what we call line editing, tightening up a few screws in the prose but not really writing out whole passages or anything like that. I haven't seen any textual evidence to make us doubt that Mary was being truthful when she said that his influence was more along the lines of encouragement and inspiration. She said he, his role was essential to her motivation. Certainly, he seems to have been very eager for her to write, to read her writing, and encouraging her to lengthen the book and all of that. But he didn't add any passages apart from the preface, as far as I know. We'll save Percy Shelley's death until part two of our episode on Percy Shelley. But let's just say now that Italy looked like it would be good for the Shelleys. They enjoyed it there. They felt freer than before. And they were inspired by the scenery, the sea, and what they encountered of the ancients, the ruins of Rome, for example. All that beauty, all that history. And they had a bit more money at this point in their lives as Shelley's grandfather had died and his estate started to open up for Percy. But the sadness was never far away from Mary Shelley's life. Things got weird when they went to Naples. Some former servants 
threatened them and accused them of some things. And Percy mysteriously registered a child that was not Mary's, but he registered the child in his and Mary's name. Whose baby was it? Some have said it was a local child that he wanted to adopt. I think most people accept it was either his baby by a woman who hasn't yet been identified, maybe Claire Claremont or someone else, or maybe it was Byron's baby, but that we know it wasn't Mary's, but that baby died later that year. Naples, said Mary, is a paradise inhabited by devils. When they got to Rome, Mary started a novel that was set in Rome. And then her son, William, caught malaria and died. She and Percy were still writing. They met up with Byron again. Claire Claremont's daughter, Allegra, died. This is all happening months apart, within a span of months. Disease after disease, death after death. Mary miscarried and almost died. While waiting for the doctor to arrive, Percy immediately put her in a bath of ice to try to stop some of the bleeding in which the doctor later said probably saved Mary's life. I'm wondering if creating life by childbirth had started to seem to Mary like a Promethean act of hubris, something as simple as wishing for a child who doesn't die and a birth that doesn't kill the mother, as of course it happened to Mary's own mother, feels like an outrageous imposition, like humans are treading on God's turf. And then... As Mary and Percy wrote novels and poetry, respectively, Percy died in a boating accident. We'll have more about that in our Shelley episode, part two. Mary was reconciled with her father, William Godwin. Now her father-in-law, Percy's father, not so much. He did not want Mary to raise the one surviving grandchild, but Mary would not have it. She wasn't going to turn over her only surviving child. Mary edited Percy's poems and took it upon herself to make him beloved, which was in tribute to him, but which also led to a few excisions she made that has been, it's been criticized over time for, she's been criticized for those excisions. She crossed out some passages of Queen Mab that dealt with atheism, for example. She uh, had some potential suitors, but nobody stuck. The proper types disdained her as scandalized by the relationship she had had with Shelley. She refused an American actor and seems to have refused his friend, Washington Irving, as well. Imagine that. If Mary Shelley and Washington Irving would have gotten together, we'd have Frankenstein and the Headless Horseman living there and wonder what kind of offspring that would have produced. We don't know if Percy Shelley would have kept up the radical views of his youth or if he would have turned toward a more conservative or establishment position as Wordsworth did before him. We do know that Mary, who lived for almost 30 more years, held on to her humanistic views to the end. She was a helper to those whom society cast out, like fallen women and lesbians. She mostly dedicated herself to helping her father with his writings, overseeing her son's growth and education, and guarding her husband's reputation. And, of course, she was herself a writer, and she wrote. She didn't stop with Frankenstein. Let's run through a few of her other productions now. I've got eight or nine on my list to go through. Frankenstein, for reference, was published in 1818. 
Shelley was involved with several editions of it that came out afterwards. That took up some of her time, and it was certainly the most celebrated of her works in her lifetime and ever since. But it was not the only novel she wrote. Matilda was the one she wrote after Frankenstein. This wasn't published in her lifetime or even soon after. It didn't come out until a hundred years after she died. It's not hard to guess the reason for the delay. Mary was in a kind of dark place when she wrote the book, and it is indeed very dark. Let me say, first of all, we don't know that it's autobiographical, but it has definite autobiographical elements. The main character is sad and almost suicidal. Finally, she tells her friend, a gifted young poet, why she has these dark moods. She says she's been struggling since her father confessed his incestuous desire for her and then committed suicide by drowning himself. She had tried to stop him, but couldn't. Mary Shelley, after she wrote Matilda, sent the novel in manuscript to Godwin, her father, who admired the writing but declared the incest angle disgusting and detestable. She wanted him, nevertheless, to submit it for publication. Not only did he not do that, he refused to return the papers to Mary. It was finally discovered in the 1950s and first published in 1959. The next novel of Mary's, Valperga, or The Life and Adventures of Castruccio, Prince of Lucca, is next. This one is a historical novel that came out in 1823. She went to medieval Florence and the famous wars of the Guelphs and Ghibellines, famous at least to fans of Dante. It's not a widely read novel, but it's a good example of the kind of novel that men like Sir Walter Scott were writing at the time. Novels about politics, about power, a combination of a love story with questions of social organization built into the fabric. Do we choose political freedom or true love? Are we governed by conquest and raw power or the more social contracty type of republic, etc.? Three years later, Mary Shelley came out with The Last Man. It's 1826. She's still not yet 30, by the way, though she's almost there. Here in The Last Man, she returns to science fiction, specifically a dystopia and even more precisely an apocalyptic setting. It's the late 21st century and the planet has been ravaged by a pandemic. Humanity has almost been wiped out. In Britain, the monarchy is no more, though the aristocracy is alive and well, or at least alive and still kicking. The hero of the book, or one of them, is Adrian, Earl of Windsor, the son of the last king of England, who shares a lot of features with Percy Shelley, coincidentally. He even dies in a boating accident. Other characters are based on Lord Byron and her father-in-law. Broadly speaking, this is something of a return to form for the author of Frankenstein, who once again is using the tension between science and humanity to explore questions of ideals, and in particular, whether progress is inevitable, and if that's a good thing, or if human flaws end up sandbagging even the best intentions. Four years later, in 1830, Mary published The Fortunes of Perkin Warbeck, a romance. This one is set in the late 15th century, and it involves the titular character, a pretender to the throne of King Henry VII. Once again, the hero has qualities we recognize in Percy Shelley, a kind of well-intentioned, kind-hearted person pulled into politics through a desire to help others. Perkin Warbeck was an actual 
historical figure who claimed to be Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York, who would have been the rightful claimant to the throne. He was one of the princes in the tower that Richard III had taken care of. In Shelley's book, Perkin Warbeck died in childhood, and this purported usurper is indeed Richard of Shrewsbury, legitimate heir to the throne. Fans of Shakespearean histories may want to check this one out. Lodore, or Lodore, 1835, comes next. This one was a critical hit. It also had an alternative title, The Beautiful Widow. We move from the grand sweep of, of history to the smaller world of a family. Three women wrestle with the legal and financial issues left behind by the dear departed Lord Lodore, who was killed in a duel. Faulkner, 1837, has a heroine who triumphs. Finally, not many of those in Mary Shelley's fiction. Once again, we have a young woman who stops an older man from committing suicide. In this case, the young woman or girl is a six-year-old orphan. The would-be suicide adopts her and raises her as a model of virtue until, yikes, she falls in love with a man named Gerald, whose mother, her adopted father, had driven to death unintentionally years before. Can we see this as a kind of autobiography? There certainly seem to be some parallels, as Faulkner is kind of Godwin-esque in his broad theories of freedom and liberty, and yet fails to truly embrace those ideals when it comes to his daughter. Free love means free love, not free love unless and until people cluck their tongues at your daughter's choices. That seems to have been Mary's position. Three more books to go. We're done with the fiction. Shelley also wrote, Mary Shelley also wrote a travel book called Rambles in Germany and Italy, published in 1844, which followed up on an earlier travel book she'd written about the trip that she and Percy Shelley had taken through France on their way to Switzerland. She has some of her most interesting writing in nonfiction, as she wrote a series of biographies and essays for what was called the Cabinet Cyclopedia. The Cabinet Cyclopedia, which was published between 1829 and 1846, was one of a number of encyclopedias intended for the general reader or family household. The idea was you could buy a single volume or a group of them or the whole shebang, which by the end was well over a hundred volumes. Authors and experts wrote them all. Sir Walter Scott himself wrote the first volume, which was The History of Scotland. Other volumes were biographies of naval heroes or great legal minds or books about astronomy and mathematics and optics. Mary Shelley wrote 10 volumes under the subgroup of The Lives of the Most Eminent Literary and Scientific Men. She later said she preferred these works to her efforts at fiction, or as she put it, to romancing. She was excellent at the job. It was almost as if she were born to do it. With her curious mind and her penchant for research and her general intelligence. But the funny thing about this being the lives of the most eminent literary and scientific men, with her particular focus on French, Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese men of the 14th to 18th centuries, is that she herself turned out to be as eminent as any of the people she wrote about, probably more so. She also wrote poetry and plays but we're running out of time. And she was a steward and promoter of Shelley's poetry, editing, and writing introductions for editions of his poems that came out after his death. In the end, we're left with a full, 
literary life. What is it like to be the offspring of two famous individuals, both of them almost without equal? Well, what kind of pressure is Chelsea Clinton under, let's say, or the children of Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf? Some part of our brain thinks that this, the offspring, will be a superhuman, a product made in a lab. Made in a lab. How appropriate to end on that note. It's perhaps to Mary's credit that my first thought is made in a lab, seeking perfection. And my second thought immediately following is careful what you wish for. You might regret it. Her story of Frankenstein could have been subtitled A Modern Zeus, celebrating the triumph of science over known reality. Instead, it was a modern Prometheus, a reminder that science, for all its power, can overpower too, and humans who reach can overreach. But Mary Shelley's own life is not such a cautionary tale as that might suggest. She was afflicted with sadness, sometimes of her own doing, but mostly not. Mostly she was a victim of society and those around her, at least a little, and much more a victim of the medicine known at the time and particularly the dangers of childbirth. Science might still not know how to create life by pumping electricity into human tissue, but at least it's helped us to understand how to preserve lives created the old-fashioned way. In her most famous work, Mary Shelley might have had her eye on the dystopia of the former, but I think, given the awful tragedies she experienced, she'd have viewed the latter as a kind of utopia. going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mary Shelley for giving us so much of how we understand Halloween and indeed the world and our relationship to it. My thanks also to Hamed, our Iranian listener in Italy. Good luck, Hamed. I will treasure the image of you walking into a bookstore in my beloved second country and holding the books in your hands, not because you can read their words, but because the feel of the books brings you inspiration and thoughts of home. You have two lives now, the one you left behind and the one you're living, but it's all a single life, just as my life now includes both of yours, and the whole world includes everything. There's a cosmic thought. My thanks finally to you, dear listeners, for helping the show do its struggling little best to make it up the tiniest of hills even as I lie in bed at night, dreaming of mountains. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>